loud, so I will allow the tech desk to adjust to my voice. Um, we are still in Isaiah 6. We're taking four Sundays just to unpack the first verses, 1 to 8 of Isaiah's call. And um, the bit this morning that I'm picking up on is just verse 6 and 7, verse six and seven but we'll read it all again. We'll read Isaiah uh, chapter 6, 1 to 8 again, just as a, as a, to see it in context. Um, Again, Holy Spirit's gone before me and um, just prompted some of what we've... Um, so uh, remember the Refining Fire song, um, Purify My Heart, Let Me Be As Gold, Precious Gold. Uh, remember Joyce's words about refining fire and letting the past go and letting it burn up. And um, remember what Helen just said about uh, keeping it simple and returning to the cross for what it means and what God's doing in our lives. If you need a Bible, stick your hand up, and there's some knocking around, there's some on the windowsills, if you want to grab one down, if you want to have a paper copy in your hand, otherwise phone out, app out, um, notes out, whatever you want to take this morning to take some notes and to follow what God is up to. All right, let's begin. I'll just read um, this first part of Isaiah 6. We're just going to read this 1 to 8. Uh, you know what? I'm going to read it out of my Bible rather than off my page. Okay, so this is Isaiah's uh, calling, and mine's titled The Cleansing and the Call. Uh, so Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it was the year King Uzziah had died, and then I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and attending him were mighty seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. And then I said, It's all over. I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live amongst a people of filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar, and with a pair of tongs he touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Uh, two weeks ago I, I kicked this off. Last week Laura did a fantastic job of uh, recapping over again and bringing in the, the area around sin and redemption. These are going to overlap, these talks, because it's only eight verses that we're looking at. But I'm going to go back now, and I'm going to take verse just six and seven. So this morning we're looking at this. Then the seraphim flew over to me with a burning coal he'd taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. I'm going to try and just pick up the three things that I see in that two bits of verse. We've got the altar and the coal. Uh, we've got this um, sin and redemptiveness. Uh, and we've got this atonement. We've got this, this consciousness of what God is doing. So um, we're going to look at what the, um, the altar and the coal, what the lips represent, and then atonement. Okay? There's my three points for this morning. So the three bits I'm picking out. The altar, the coal, the lips, and atonement. All right. Follow me along. Let's go. Um, I don't know what you think of when you think of altar. Uh, it might be something you've, you're conscious of. If you can imagine this church when it was originally designed, actually, it would have been back there, just below that big window, uh, there would have been an altar. Step up, step up, step up. You were always going up towards it, yeah? There would have been a table. It would have been laid, probably covered in a, a cloth, a bit like probably... I've got a laser on here, haven't I? Look. 
a bit like, get my laser on, a bit like that one in some descriptions, bottom left. And it would have been this uh, table. Now, most, I say modern churches, most churches in the last few centuries, the last few hundred years, would have been a stone table, probably marble, because it was often a, it was where um, wood and the fire was laid historically in the Old Testament. Of course, we don't burn fires now at the front of church and come with our sacrifices of animals. This would be quite a smelly place full of like, you know, pigs and all sorts going on. We don't do that anymore. So actually not pigs, that's an odd thing to say. Cattle, sheep, uh, goats, we don't do that anymore. But um, it was the place where uh, the minister would stand behind, he would minister before God, the people would come up to the altar. It would have that sacrifice, that sense of awe and wonder about it, the, the, um, the communion would be laid out there, things would be prayed over, things would be prepared before God in that place. Quite often the scripture was read from the altar, it was laid out, the Bible was laid out and read from there. And all well, that symbolism comes back to this idea of an altar. Actually, if you go back to altar, really, you're starting with top left, you're just starting with a pile of bricks, a pile of stones, whatever was to hand to build a platform to put a fire on and to bring a sacrifice to God. The first altar's mentioned, actually it mentioned, I think it's, um, uh, it's Genesis 8, and, um, go to your notes, Miles, Genesis 8 and Noah, uh, who makes an altar to the Lord just after he's come out of the ark. And if you remember in the story of the ark, he's kept some animals aside for this very purpose, they are choice animals. They are some of the best of the animals. They're without defect, without fault. This is before the temple. This is before any understanding that they would sacrifice animals for atonement for sin or for removing anything. This is Noah simply coming before God and saying, you are worthy of my praise and adoration. I want to have a relationship with you. I've come out of the ark. You've done and you've fulfilled your promises, everything you said to me. You've fulfilled everything you said over my family, my life. You've kept me safe. You've kept me through the flood. I'm coming out. And one of the first things he does is build an altar, lay a fire, and sacrifice these choice animals, which are costly, right? I mean, these are the breeders. These are the good ones. These are the ones without defect and blemish. These are the ones that have got great value, right? This is like, you know, sacrificing your Ferrari type of thing, right? This is, you know, I'm just going to set it on fire for the Lord. You know, this is some of your best, but he's done it intentionally. This is my relationship with you, God. I want to meet you at this place now. I want to show you my adoration and your worth. We move on to, obviously, um, altars in the tabernacle when God gives the pattern of the altar, and he takes it for, uh, further in. But you find before that pattern, you still find altars in, uh, let's go, Noah chapter 8 of Genesis, Abraham chapters 12 and 13, Isaac in chapter 26 of of, uh, Genesis, Jacob in chapter 33 of Genesis, Moses in Exodus, and Saul when you get into Samuel. Actually, this idea of having this special place of building a platform and of bringing a sacrifice to God was going on way before God actually gave instructions to Moses to pattern what the temple would look like, to pattern what the tabernacle would look like. This was something happening in the hearts of men who were saying, I love my God and I want to do something, and I want to do something that's significant and I want to have a place to meet him. And wherever they moved, quite often the first thing they did was, it said, so-and-so gathered his tents and his people, and off he went on a journey, and he got somewhere. When he arrived and he set up his tent, he made an altar and worshipped to God. You know, one of the first things they did was just say, hey, God, we're still with you. You're still with us. I want to give you my best, and I want to... You've led me to this place. Often it was God's instruction why they ended up where they ended up. And one of the first things they do, altar, pile of stones, pile of bricks, whatever it might have been, and then that place. I think the tabernacle altar must have been much more like that stone one with the, the horns on the corner, something that can be taken apart, moved with the tent and reassembled brick by brick 
to have this altar that they had before God. So that's altars. What's amazing in this scene is what we see is, is that there is an altar in heaven. Not only is it in heaven, it's in the throne room. Not only is it in the throne room, but it's right by the throne. It's right next to God's throne. Next to God's throne is an altar, but actually altars were about, were about man meeting with God. So why is there an altar in heaven? And that's sort of a question that at first you think, oh yeah, well, yeah the altars were on earth were patterned after the one in heaven, but why have an altar at all in heaven? Why was, that, why was it there before and, and not something God just instigated for earth? Because it's not a thing about man meeting with God. Why is there one in heaven? It's a question that blew my mind a bit as we started to unpack this. The altar is about connection with God. It's about that place where you meet with God. But we see that before there was an altar on earth, there was one in heaven. God is always the sacrificial God. He's always the God who died to set us free. He's always the God that loves us and puts us before himself because that's the nature of love, to prefer the other and to make a way. The eternal altar stands in the throne room near the throne of God because it is that important to the Father. It's where the high priest of heaven serves on behalf of us because you don't have an altar without having someone serve at it. It's not just an altar for an altar's sake. An altar is there for someone to serve at that altar. And what we discover is if you go to Hebrews chapter 7, 8, and 9, you get this incredible unpacking of um, Paul writing and saying, this is patterned after the altar in heaven where Jesus, the high priest, stands at that altar. And what's really incredible is he not only is he the priest of the altar, the high priest of all altars, he's also the sacrifice on the altar, because that's who he is. He's the God who died for us. And so what you've got eternally, and this was what really blew my mind, eternally, outside of any altar on earth, outside of time and space, God has always had, because heaven's eternal, it's before the beginning, the end, it's always existed, everything in God's presence has always been there, God has always had an altar and a high priest that was there, prepared and ready to be the gap between man and God who is holy. He was always prepared. This was always his plan. This was always his intention. Always. So the earthly altars are patterned after the heavenly altar. But something in me went, well, why have the heavenly altar in the first place? Other than this is just in his nature. This is who God is. The God who loves, the God who makes a way. He's eternally prepared. He's never out of season. He's never not ready to go for you. He's never not ready with a place where prayers and incense can be burned, we're a place where there is a priest who on your behalf intercedes, the Bible says, to God. Jesus is bigging you up to God all the time in the throne room at that altar. And the altar speaks of relationship between man and God. Through what? Through the sacrifice? Through the costing you something? Through the choosing? What God got really cross about, and you get into the Old Testament, was when people brought their gifts to the altar without heart without mind. They just, when I've got to do it, it's in the law. I've got to go and sacrifice a thing. It's costing me, and I'm cheesed off about it, and I don't want to do it. And God said, I don't want your, I don't want your sacrifices. They're, they're, they're detestable to me, because it was never about the thing. It was about the heart that brought the thing. It was about you choosing to meet with God. It all caught me. Um, it's just the significance of the high priest of heaven never fails to want to be there. So the earthly priests got it wrong, the Levitical priests. So there was the, nations of Israel, the nation of Israel, and you had the different tribes, and the Levites were chosen to be the priests, right? They were chosen to do that job. They carried around the tabernacle. They were the ones that stood before the altar. But if you read the stories, they were men who, in their own weakness, got it wrong. They were impure. They didn't do the ceremonies right. They didn't do it following God's patterns and his 
instructions, and yet there is a heavenly priest who has never failed to be perfect before God and to represent for us before God. So we've never not had that in, in us and for us. I just thought that was something that really blew my mind. Definitely go and read, but a homework for you. Go and read Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. I'll flash a few verses up because it's worth seeing them, but I don't want to do any more than that. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says this, Such a high priest truly meets our needs, describing Jesus. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed their sins once for all when he offered himself. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one to also have something to offer. And what could he offer that was not better than himself? There was nothing higher, nothing more worthy, nothing more worthy to give to God than what? Yourself. So God gives God himself. It's a mind-boggling concept, right? The God who is, the God who is triune, the God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God gives God himself. God sacrifices and says, the most worthy thing I can do is die for the people that I have made, to be in relationship with them and to sacrifice myself on behalf. And then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. He's there for us. That's why he's there in the sanctuary of heaven. Isaiah looks into heaven, sees God on the throne, sees the altar. And the altar has been there eternally. And the altar was about relationship, connection. They came to the altar to give, to connect, to show that they loved God, to value him, to connect with him, yeah? All right, point one, bang, let's move on. Ooh, having fun. Isaiah has this moment of like, just like, ah, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a people of unclean lips. And a bit of me went, why didn't he say unclean heart? Why didn't he say unclean mind? Why don't you say unclean spirit? Why lips? Why go there? Why of all the bits was that the bit that, why was that the bit in that revelation in that moment? Because I said to think of the first week that I spoke, I said, you can imagine he's in the presence of pure love. He's in the presence of pure justice, pure mercy, pure grace. It's, it's tearing through his being. Every element of his mind is exposed. You can't hide anything from God, right? Every element of his spirit, every cell in his body, he's in the presence of God. The, the, the doorposts are shaking. Holy, holy, holy. And there's a cloud. I mean, Simon talks about the cloud. Let the cloud in, people. Let the cloud in. All right. There's a cloud in God's presence. And he's just, and then it's, ah, I just recognize I should not be here. And it's my lips, it's my speech, it's my tongue, it's what I communicate. And I go, okay, 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 all right, let's go and look at that. Let's go and find it, let's go and look, let's go and see, see what Jesus says about it. Let's go and look at the, the scriptures, let's go and see what's going on here. Isaiah pa panics in this moment, but then consider this. How is Satan described? He's a liar, he's the father of lies, isn't he? John chapter 8, verse 44. Um, Jesus says this about the devil. He's having an argument with the Pharisees, and he calls them 
Um, he says that your father is the devil to the Pharisees. Arsh, but true, because he doesn't lie. Um, he was a murderer. He describes him because he's describing who they are because they are the sons, the Pharisees. He's like, you were just the sons of the devil. You're not the sons of God. You don't know God properly. And this is what the devil is like. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, it's consistent with his character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. There's something in absolute core nature of the devil of Satan, which is the opposite of God, right? Murderous, destructive, destroying, and does not want truth. What is one of the biggest battles we're having at the moment in society, right? Truth. Oh, it's my truth, not your truth. You can have your truth, I've got my truth. Well, that means there's, you can't have, one of them's true, right? They can't both be. So it's my truth over your truth. It's, um, well, I've found, I'll find it for me. It's I'll fulfill me and I'll discover what I know. Do you know how fickle our minds are? Do you know how broken and, and faulty they can be? How on earth are we going to find our truth just in our own space, right? How are we going to find truth with what's presented to us in the world around us? There is so much lie. There is so much nonsense. There is so much, and yet, as young people or as adults, and we're watching something and reading something, and we're trying to pick out and find our, our truth in the midst of all of that. Yet the only place to find truth is in the one who made all things, in the one who formed the world, in the one who set the stars in place, the one who made the truth. God, it's the only place you find truth. It's the only place you find stability. It's the only place you find what you're looking for. You find it in God because he is the only one. And the Bible describes God as being all truth, his perfect speech. Jesus is what? He's the word that came from God. He's the voice of God. He is the thing that everything was made through, and through him nothing was made. He is the word. John 1, yeah? The word. We're back to speech. We're back to this moment Isaiah is having this revelation of my words, nothing. I realize how faulty I am. I realize the people that are your people, I'm from this people, are faulty too. How we don't carry the truth as we should. Because what we speak and what we think and the words that we hear and the words that are here end up being the actions, right? They end up being what we do and where we go. It ends up being how we treat others. It ends up being what patterns into our hearts and minds. It comes out of us, yeah? Devil... From the Garden of Eden, from the very start, he came and he twisted truth. What did God really say? He didn't say he could not eat the apple, right? Nee, was it really? Nee. From the very beginning, twist it, change it, confuse, lead astray. Adam and Eve's first sin was to question God, was to not recognize he is truth, he is the way, he's the one. They questioned him, they started to twist in their mind, well, he said, if we eat it, we'll die, but maybe, ooh, and then what happens? Bang, sin comes in. Sin is released. Death and destruction is released into the world from that very start. There's something in the words, in those thoughts, in those moments that I think is just worth us being conscious of. Truth is found in the one who originates all things, God. Nowhere else can it be found in its fullest or in its purest. In Isaiah's heart and spirit and mind are rocked to the core as he stands before the God of truth and realizes his sin and failings, even though uh, his words, because uh, his words become his actions and his habits and his behaviors. Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus says this, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. 
but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for the empty words that they have spoken, for by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. What happens when we choose Jesus? We say something. We speak life over ourselves. Jesus, would you come into my life? Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Jesus, I'm sorry. Our words are the words. In that moment, our heart responds, the words come out, and we release heaven on ourselves. We bring life to ourselves in this moment. It's our words that either condemn us, because we've said, God, I hate you. God, I don't want you. God, get away from me. Or it's our words that acquit us. We've spoken and we've said, redeem me, save me, be in my life, be my all, be my best. And then we've patterned that through. It's incredible that words have such power, yeah? We can take life with words, we can give life with words. We can build up, we can tear down. We can destroy people with our words, yeah? They've got power. Any way you look at it, they've got power. And we can praise, and we can adore, and we can lift up, and we can exalt, and we can do all these things simply by putting that lips into action, yeah? It's amazing. Isaiah is standing in the presence of pure truth, fullness, completeness, perfectness, limitlessness, wisdom, understanding, power, authority, rule, holy, holy, holy. I think I've just gone back to those verses I've already quoted, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word existed with God, and the Word was God. And John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the truth. Oh, we're back to truth again. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way, but I'm the truth. If you want to find truth, if you want to really know what's real, if you want to have something to stand on the rock, it's Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, brill. So we've covered altar. It's eternal. God has always had this plan to have this place that we can meet with God and we can receive our salvation with a sacrifice of praise, with a sacrifice of heaven, with a sacrifice that means that there is nothing stopping you and God having a relationship. That place to meet God always existed, eternal, patterned into the earth in different ways, but first and foremost, always in God's heart, always in his nature. And then recognizing that who we are as faulty humans when we fail in our voice and we fail in our tongue, when we don't bring life in our words and we fail him, when we have choice, choose to speak, what we can choose to do. So we get to this point, we get to this purity and atonement. Atonement means making amends for wrong. So when the atonement, that's what the word means, is that restoration moment. But it's an action, it's a doing thing. Um, atonement is doing something. It's restoring, it's bringing back into the way it should be. It's amending for wrong or for injury. Um, Isaiah's blown away, stood there, and then an angel takes a coal from the altar. Now, the altar's pure and it's holy and it's in the presence of God. Nothing can be in the presence of God that isn't pure and holy, so it's perfect. He takes this burning coal and he brings it and he touches Isaiah's lips and he says, see, this has removed your guilt, it's removed your sin, it's atoned for you. It's done the restoration. Why? Why does a hot coal do anything? Because it's not just a hot coal. It's a hot coal from the altar where the priest, most high priest stands. It's a pure, perfect place. And in that purity and holiness, it imparts it supernaturally onto Isaiah in that moment. In that moment, Isaiah is forgiven and released because of what the altar symbolizes, because of who the priest is behind the altar. Remember, altars are pointless if there ain't a priest. 
The altar is meaningless if it's not what the altar is for, because let's be clear, lots of other religions and faiths have altars. I used to work for British Gas. Um, I'd be in people's homes all the time. And uh, I've been into a number of uh, homes where there's been an altar in the house, um, a Hindu altar or a Sikh thing. And there's been something, there's, let's just, it's in the kitchen, it was kettle, microwave, altar. Bit of a weird mix. And there's a picture of the God, and there's some flowers and some fruit in a bowl before it, and some candles and some, some things, you know, burning. And you have to look and go, ah, I mean, in all fairness to you, well done. You've made it prominent and center in a place that you hang out in all the time. You ain't going to miss it, are you? It's going to keep reminding you that this is the God that you want to honor because they've done this little altar. They've done this little thing in their house. Where's ours as Christians? Not a practical little display in a picture of Jesus. Some people do that. Where's ours? What is it we're called to do? Go into your closet. Go into your quiet place. And the God who sees in secret rewards you openly. That's our place. That's our altar. That's our burnt offering. That's our sacrifice. When we go in the quiet and when we hang out in his presence, when we worship him, when we lift him up, when we listen, when we go into scripture, when we play a worship song, maybe yours is driving in the car, when you stick in your Bluetooth and you just connect with God and you pray over the day and you, it's, your, it's that quiet moment from getting out of a busy house full of whatever and before you get into the busyness of work, you take that time, you take that 20 minute drive to go, here's my altar to you today, God. Here's my burnt offering. Here's my moment in your presence to say, here I am, send me. Here I am, use me. I think we need to remember that that is so important in our lives. We must keep our altars, as it were, I'm using the word, but we must keep that place in our lives because it's important to connect with God, connect with God, connect with God. It's a daily thing. It's a habitual thing. It's a good thing. It's a restorative thing. It's a restoration thing. It's a connecting thing. We must, must keep going. All right. Do, 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 do. So the altar is pure, it's holy, it's perfect, it's the place of redemption of all sin, and a hot coal from it, a coal comes and touches Isaiah's lips, and the angel is able to say with all confidence and all knowledge, see this has touched your lips, your guilt is removed, your sins are atoned for, it's done, it's a done deal, and then God screams out, who is going to go for us next week, who shall I send, we get to next week. That's what we're going to pick up next week. All right. Here's the funny thing. And King David repeated this in Psalm 51. King David recognized when he wrote, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. In that moment, did Isaiah have a, a handy bull or a goat to offer on the altar in heaven? No, he had himself. And he had a consciousness that he was broken and that he was standing before a God with a spirit that said, I'm just not worthy. I'm not worthy to be here. And God went, that's all I want, all I need. That's perfect. I can do the restoration because you can't do it yourself. That's what Jesus does for us. God, on our behalf, comes and does the restoration. We need to get to the place of recognizing we need him and that we're broken and that if I come to you with that contrite heart, with that spirit that says, God, restore me, come and be with me, he goes, absolutely. And now what's he send? A hot coal or the fire of his Holy Spirit, his Spirit's presence, that fire on Pentecost, that fire that burns up. Um, we touched on this this morning. Joyce was saying sometimes our past, we carry around some of that junk and baggage. 
You know what? One of the things when we come to God is actually to let him in. Let him have all those places. Let him burn up the mess. Refine as fire, my one desire is to be holy, set apart, purify like gold and silver, precious gold. We are like gold to God. We never cease to have our value. Just sometimes we get a lot of dirt mixed in, right? Sometimes we're just we're gold with bits and bits stuck on, and we just need that purification. Like every individual out there is gold to God. That's their worth. They are absolutely priceless, and he desires them because it's a good thing that he's made people in his image. Yet they are out there, and they're just not purified. They haven't experienced the presence of God, the purification, and to be refined into who they should they're designed to be, have their spirits made alive, to wake up. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we are part of. All right, let's round up. It's funny that the Old Testament priests had to um, sacrifice for their own sins first to make themselves pure and holy, and then they had to sacrifice on behalf of the people, and then they, had, then they were once a year were allowed into the Holy of Holies. Jesus comes as the high priest of heaven, Oh, sorry, just to make a point there. And then once they've been purified, the, the Old Testament priests, they couldn't risk touching anything unpure because they would lose their purity. As bizarre as that was, they couldn't touch somebody who had leprosy. They couldn't touch a dead body. They couldn't go to a woman who had an issue of blood. They couldn't do, they had to sort of like, almost like, imagine just walking around, like, don't touch me, don't touch me, like dodging people in crowds. I don't know what it was like. Some were in there. Once they'd done the ceremonialist to make the sort of outside clean, they couldn't touch anything. The high priest of heaven comes to earth, and what does he go around doing? Touching everything! Touching the lepers! Touching dead bodies and bringing them to life! Restoring, just like the coal restored, the power of God in the power of Jesus comes, and what does he do? He restores. He goes around going, touch the leper! Touch the dead! Touch the woman with the issue of blood, restore, 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 because heaven has come to restore, because the power of God has come to restore. It's that pattern of the priest in heaven. The priests on earth couldn't do it. They had to just get themselves right in their own sin and then just do their best to represent before God. But the heavenly priest comes and he carries the presence of God. He carries heaven. He carries what that altar represents in heaven with him in who he is. And he's, he's the one going around going, you can't infect me, but I can infect you. I can bring release and freedom on you. And that's who we are today, church. We carry the presence of Jesus into our situations. We're the ones bringing the release. We're not the ones going in. It's, it's, it's the Christians that stay in leprosy, right? I literally got something from the leper's mission, I think it was, this morning in the post at church. It's the Christians that are going into where the dirt is, going into where the filth is, and healing and restoring and bringing back life. That's our job, because that's who he is. That's who he's made us to be. Isn't it incredible? The throne room of heaven comes down. God's presence comes down. The altar of heaven comes down, and God walks amongst us as Jesus, and he restores. That's his desire. All right. Heaven has an eternal altar. Let's conclude. Heaven has an eternal altar. Jesus is the high priest of heaven, interceding on our behalf. He's the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all because God has always been prepared to receive us and it's always been his eternal plan. Our lips remind us we have thought and spoken lies and we've done wrong things. We've fallen short of God's holiness and we need help to get right and that atonement that we need a touch from heaven to be made pure again. We're purifying just like a refiner's fire purifies gold, just like a fire burns away the dirt. We need the fire of God's presence and power burning in our lives. Just as the sacri- uh, Jesus is the sacrifice on the altar, 
take our punishment and free us from our guilt and sin so we can walk in God's throne room as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, stand in His presence and respond to His call. But that's next week. All right. I'm just going to pray, church. Will you stand with me? Um, I'll ask the prayer team to make themselves available. Listen, we all know how this works. We move through life and we pick up tat and we, our gold gets a bit grubby at the edges, the gold that is who we are. And as we've already done this morning, we've just took some time to pause and just again say, God, you're holy. I want your restoration. I want to be reminded that you have always eternally desired to have a relationship with me. I want to use my place of altar, my heart place, my place, my quiet place with you to, to connect with you, to tell you. To, it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. It costs you time and energy to be there. Go to that place regularly. Pattern in that time with God. Ask for forgiveness. Let him into the history. Let him into the pain. Let him into the places where the stuff needs burning up where your purification is still going on. We are a work in progress, church family, aren't we? We've all got stuff we're working out with God. We've all got things that we're struggling with. Just be reminded again this morning, if you want to do a bit of business with God, maybe you want some prayer from somebody. Um, actually, I think the prayer guys are back corner today. Swap around a little bit, put the coffee over there. Go and see someone, go and have a little chat. Just even just to say, look, just pray for me. You don't even say what it is, just pray for me. Go and do that. But let's just pray and just um, restore this this morning. Father God, we thank you that this incredible image, Isaiah in this moment kind of sees the fullness of what it's all about. He sees the throne room of heaven that you are the God who's glorious and in all power and all authority. He sees the altar where the sacrifice of heaven has always been patterned in. You've always been the God who wants to be with his people. He experiences that sense of his, his lack and his limit in that moment and then he is touched and restored fully so that he is pure and holy before you. Father God, thank you that this is the pattern that we experience today. God, you are in full control. God, you love us with an eternal love that has always wanted relationship and intimacy with us. You made yourself the perfect sacrifice because nothing else would be better. You died for us to make a way so that we can receive you and then we can have a touch of heaven, be restored, have the refining fire of Jesus' spirit in our lives going from glory to glory, from purity to purity, God, as you work through us. And Lord, ready to go out and do your will. Yeah. Thank you, Father, this is the truth. Thank you, Father, this is the truth. Thank you, Father, this is the truth. Jesus, amen. built on nothing 